Hey folks, welcome to the Green Root Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Schlossberg. In this episode, we have Kevin Hester. Kevin is an abrupt climate change researcher living on Rakino Island in New Zealand, which has no grid-tied electricity, no shops, a permanent population of 21 humans, thousands of birds, and not one rodent. He's the co-host of Nature Bats Last on the Progressive Radio Network and volunteers at the not-for-profit Rakino Island Nursery Propagating Native Trees for an Island-Wide Rewilding Project. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Yeah, it's an honor to be with you here. I've been listening to lots of the uh, podcasts that you've put out on this new platform, and it's a, a very good um, resource for people who are trying to navigate what I call the perfect storm. Yeah, well, we're doing our best. Appreciate it and really appreciate what you're doing to your podcast as well. You've been putting that out way longer than I have, so you've been paving the way for it. So I do appreciate that. So let's just get right into it. When is the world going to end and what should I bring with me? A lot of times we confuse the end and these sort of uh, discussions with um we conflate everything about us. Human hubris is how we've got into this predicament where it's always about uh, humans. So obviously the world will end when the sun implodes or, or uh, we hit by, the planet gets hit by an, a large asteroid that will break it up. But the planet will be fine physically. It is just the biosphere that is in danger. Recently, we had on on our show um, Corey Bradshaw from the Flinders University of Australia. And until recent times, I thought that, well, at least tardigrads are going to get through the bottleneck. You know, there will be some life left. But what what he's just found in his recent research, that even tardigrads could be in danger. So, you know, we we are risking sterilizing the entire planet. Okay. So, yeah, of course I was joking when I said that, but that's typically how it's framed. And yeah, I do think we typically do conflate all those aspects. So I've had different ways of looking at it over the years. I definitely used to more think about a big kablooey. Now I see it more as an unraveling. Do you feel like that's a more accurate way of looking at things? Or do you think it'll unravel to the point where there is a kablooey? How would you just, what would the best analogy be for it? I think we're, we have already started a chain reaction of collapse. Um, in, in, the, in the study that I've done with Corey Bradshaw, who I mentioned just a moment ago, he, um, he talks about extinction cascades. And when you lose a keystone species, that creates a, a domino effect through all the other codependent species. And I suspect that we are in that, we've gone off that Seneca cliff and we're heading in that direction of having mass spatial uh, collapse take place at a non-linear rate. That's what I think will happen. Okay. And of course, the question is, when is this going to happen? Is this something, obviously, if this is a process, it has begun, it, arguably it began thousands of years ago when We started industrializing. It depends on when you want to put the finger on it. But obviously, things have been accelerating and accelerating. So when do you see things getting so bad it's noticeable to your average individual? Any moment now. 
any moment now, I think that dawning will come on everyone. And that presents an incredible danger for the economic system that we have. Because how, what I think is a really good analogy is Jenga. You know the Jenga game. When you're playing Jenga, what happens as a general rule is the Jenga pile gets steadily more unstable right. as each piece is removed. And you can see it shaking. And you can see it getting closer and closer to that tipping point. I think we are, I think we could even be at the point where the Jenga pile has tipped and we're watching it in the free fall stage. And I, I expect it to unfold like that. So, so the data, what data would you have to convince somebody who is skeptical that pretty much anything is wrong, right? There, there's a whole spectrum of folks who take a look at this issue. So there are people who are like, no, no, it's about to collapse completely. It's people who are like, I see it unraveling gradually. I'm probably more in that field, although I'm open to being convinced. And then there are people, eh, there's some issues, but no big deal. And then there's probably some people, actually, it's fine and don't even worry about it. So, uh, yeah. My, my predominant focus is on the Arctic. What we saw in the last week, we saw a new world record temperature in the Arctic Circle of 38 degrees C. That's 100 degrees Fahrenheit in the Arctic Circle. That's crazy. The sea temperature anomalies in the Arctic are, are ridiculous, sometimes 12 and 15 degrees C of temperature anomalies. I have a post on my uh, website, um, the cascading effects of the loss of Arctic sea ice. It's based on, a, on different science papers, one from the Scripps Institute of Oceanography. And what Scripps say is that the loss of the Arctic sea ice, when it goes to a BOE, a, a Blue Ocean event, is the equivalent of shunting us forward 25 years emissions. Well, when you think that the last 25 years emissions that we've put out are more than all the previous 250 years, you get an idea of that step change that could take place and I believe is underway at the moment. So this is a matter of you're seeing temperatures get to the point where, what, the planet is uninhabitable. Obviously, there's going to be phases in between it. If it were to get to the place where it's uninhabitable, where right now it's pretty habitable. Obviously, the climate is changing. Obviously, we're having more extreme weather events, more unbearable summers in some places, weaker winters, however you want to look at it. But um, so, so do you see a point in time where it's basically so hot that there's just not life? Well, are you aware of the term wet bulb temperature? I don't think so, no. Okay, wet bulb temperature is something that happens to um, animals like us, warm-blooded animals, where you, you hit your, uh, uh, for humans, it's 35 degrees C, when the humidity is over 80%, oh. at 35C, we can't cool our bodies. Okay. So if you don't have access to cold water to, to drink and to bathe in, or air conditioning, you suffer from um, organ failure. And I think that will be a very large part of the falling over of our species and also the other uh, vertebrates around us. 
But I think what will happen is, is that as temperatures take off, the, the flora, the plants, can't adjust like we can. And they have adjusted to a very tight temperature range. So what you'll see is you'll see trees and crops failing everywhere. And, you know, for people in the United States, you've got lots of examples of forests dying right before your very eyes. I, I can't comprehend how traumatic that must be for people like you and I who, who live and, and, and savour the outdoors. To see that falling over in front of your face is a very traumatic experience. I think one of our biggest challenges before collapse unfolds is managing our grief and the grief of our youth. That's a huge topic, and I agree that's super important. I think we should get to that in a minute, but there's a few other points I want to go over before getting into that. But excellent point. For sure, we're going to cover that. So basically, the, the stages that we're seeing is ecosystem degradation or unraveling or disappearances, right? So forests, forests falling apart. I mean, we are seeing more wildfires, of course, for the most part. The level of wildfires in the U.S. has been the forest burn. They always have. They do tend to come back. If we're just having occasional wildfires, no big deal. But if there's constant wildfires, well, that's that's no good, right? The stressing of trees where they can't grow, issues like that. Is that kind of what you're seeing more in terms of forests? Yes. Well, one of the things that we have to consider when we talk about what the danger the biosphere is in is tipping points. Right, and the the burning of these forests is an, is indicative of one one particular um, tipping point. As those forests burn, two fundamental things take place. Those forests have been sequestering carbon for as long as they've been alive, so that function of carbon sequestration is lost, and the role that they play in the hydrological cycle is lost. Because, you know, as we all know, forests, especially rainforests, create sky rivers. That is lost. But when those, when those trees burn, all the carbon they stored over the decades they were growing is now re-emitted into the atmosphere. One benefit that we have of that is that there's a lag between when carbon is emitted into the atmosphere and when we see the effects. There's varying um, scientific positions on that. 10 to 30 years is the range that I operate on. So there is no really immediate effect from the loss of the forest and right. that carbon emission. Right. But what's happening in a lot of places around the world, and Argentina at the moment, there are huge fires burning in Argentina. I only found out about that this morning hmm. before I, you know you and I got online together. And, and those forests, a lot of them are burning on peatland. Okay. And one of the problems with peatland burning is methane. Right. Because when methane is, is emitted, it's um, 20 to 100 times worse than carbon on different timescales. But the, the really bad thing about methane is that the warming is almost immediate. Okay. Yep. So when that methane gets into the atmosphere, it is straight away heating it up. And that is the classic feedback loop. Yeah, that's definitely a problem. Definitely the ending of the hydrological cycle if the trees die. Of course, the issue, like you mentioned, I think that's what you meant by it. The, the carbon, when a tree burns, unless it's completely to a crisp, which rarely happens, vaporized, 
the carbon, a lot of it is still stored in the trunk, but it does gradually go up into the atmosphere. But you're saying the methane issue is, is far worse and the fact that that's happening in the peat bogs or the peat areas. Yeah, that's, that's a whole other thing that's, uh, that does not sound promising. So we have forest de degradation, destruction, however you want to look at that. Obviously, what would follow then is species extinction, right? And then cascades. So if you remove one particular, let's just say all the deer die. I don't know why that would happen, but let's just say that happens. Obviously, that messes up the whole uh, you know, vegetation cycles that, that are dependent on the, the herbivores and then the predators that consume the herbivores and probably many more things that splash out from there. So you see more species extinction, not just from us humans directly killing them because we're pretty good at extincting species that way and taking over the land base, but you're seeing sort of an unraveling that's sort of just happening on its own that claims species? Absolutely. In my region, last year in Australia, the continent of Australia lost 20% of its forests in one fire season. Billions of animals were exterminated. We've only discovered something like 18 or 20 percent of all the species that are on the planet. When you have when you have massive amounts of um, ecological degradation, we could be losing keystone species that we don't even know exist. Sure. You know, this is what we have to always remember. We don't know the whole story. Yeah. It can only be worse than what we know. Yeah, yeah, there's a ton that we don't know. We don't even know what the bottom of the ocean looks like, and not to mention we haven't explored our own inner space as humans. So, yeah, there's way more that we don't know than we do. In terms of wildfire, though, I do want to stress that a lot of wildfire is fine for the forest, is essential for the forest. It's just if it gets to the point where that's all that's happening, Obviously, that's a concern. And once when everything was forest in a region, okay, you can stand to lose a lot of that. But when we've taken away so many of the forests, now we're just working with a small percentage. Yes, it can be argued that any massive wildfire could potentially be a very strong impact on the native species there. Most critters do, and they know what to do in fires. Most of the time, that doesn't kill them all. But if this is just going on, whammy after whammy after whammy that's what you're concerned about right you're not concerned about an occasional wildfire here and there you know you we in australia they have very very unique um speciation and they've got two species koalas that a lot of people would know about and wombats they can't even walk fast okay let alone run fast yeah so they so can't a escape. lot of they can't escape, yeah. And birds can, but you know, birds are still evolved to their region. Right. There, there was um, my co-host on on the show, Guy McPherson. He talks about a robin that was in, that was um, went extinct because it was only in one region, and they had fires in that region, and that that forest burnt down. And the birds could fly to another island, but there was no habitat for them, and they went extinct. So, you know, the, everything is interlinked and we're all very much dependent on the environment that we evolved to. Yeah, so the tipping point is a very concerning thing. Obviously, we don't know for 100% when that is, but scientists have been talking about that for quite some time. That's 
fairly mainstream science, the concept of a tipping point. These are predictions we don't know, but we have enough evidence to suggest that we should pay attention to that. One thing that I find interesting is some people will say, well, this isn't all, there are some people who are not quite climate deniers, right? They're folks who are saying, listen, I acknowledge that there's humans, humans are putting some CO2 into the, to the atmosphere, but nature's also doing a lot of that as well. What would, what would your, which we don't, we don't know, right? It, it's probably a little bit of both. I think it's probably primarily human and then a bit of nature or whatever. But what would you say to those folks who are like, well, this is mostly nature doing it, so shouldn't we just let it be? Uh, I think that, that you know anyone taking that position is pretty intellectually bankrupt when you know the amount of information that we have at hand. It's just a cop-out, I think. That's fair. That's fair. Would you say that a, a reasonable thing to say to them maybe would be, well, let's just say... Let's just pick some numbers. Let's just say it's 75% nature. I don't think that's true. And 25% human cause. So let's just say that's their belief, which I don't think the science backs up, but let's just say that's their belief. W wouldn't it still be reasonable to say, well, guess what? At a certain point, we're getting to this part in the bottle, right? It's filling up to this point in the bottle. It doesn't matter if our contributions are less. If we put a little bit more in, it's still going to go above the bottle. So wouldn't that be a way of that tipping point thing could be a way of getting the folks who are on board who are like, yeah, I don't know how much human cause. It doesn't really matter at that point, does it? Well, yeah, that's right. Well, what I get back to all the time is in science, they, there used to be a thing called the precautionary principle. And to those people, I would say, well, even if you think that it's 50-50, Let's take responsibility for our 50. Right. Let's own what we're doing. Take ownership of the fact that we're, we're grinding the living planet into dust. And let's do our part and then let Gaia sort out the rest. Yeah, well, that's definitely a reasonable statement. Of course, not everyone is being reasonable all the time, so it's kind of hard to reach those folks. Yeah, maybe it's not worth even trying to engage those individuals, but I think it's good to try to see where people are coming from and seeing if there can be an argument to at least get them thinking over time. But we might not have a lot of time if the information that you're putting out is correct, right? So, okay, so let's get into environmental group stuff. So interestingly enough, I think you might agree, but maybe you won't agree that it's enough. A lot of mainstream environmental groups have been sounding a bit more of an alarm in terms of, no, this is for real. So Greta Thunberg, whatever you think of her, and I don't think a 17-year-old should make our policy, but I think she's right on in terms of she's concerned about the natural world. And she's saying, no, we can't be effing around. This is serious. So she's had a fairly, you know, I have plenty of criticism for some of her stuff, but I don't worry about it because she's 17. But Regardless, she's putting out some fairly dire news that has been taken up by, frankly, mainstream media across the world. So do you think that's a positive, a positive development or is it still too little too late? Well, it's all just talk to start with. That's so, true. you know, <laughs> that's talk true. is cheap. And we're really good at it. Humans are really good at rambling on and doing SFA. Yes. 
one of the things where I think the environmental movement has failed, where where we didn't talk about how dangerous the, the worst case scenarios are, is that because we talked, you know, the Green Party in New Zealand are still talking about 2C being an achievable goal. Okay. You know, this is completely and utterly ludicrous. If you go back far enough in the baselines, if you go back to 1750, we're probably around 2C already. Mm. But see, people are ignoring that. And, and we're taking for granted that at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, there was 280 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere. And that people are saying, well, that should have been the steady state, or that was the steady state. Okay. But I don't actually agree with that, because <laughs> civilization, the minute humans became civilized and started living in community, bigger communities and burning more fires, we started changing it. So 250 might have been the, the steady state. I see. I see what you're saying. And this is where we go back to the precautionary principle. We should be looking at what the worst-case scenario is and planning for it. I've done 16 ocean passages on small yachts. What I always did is follow the precautionary principle. That's why I'm still here sitting being able to talk to you. Yep. When, when my forecast told me I was going to get a 40-knot wind, I prepared for 60. Yeah, well, that's just being smart, right? That's just being cautious and reasonable. And you're doing it for an ocean voyage, which, of course, is dangerous, but it's nowhere as dangerous as planetary collapse. So you would think that if you're doing it for that, we should be doing it for these larger things. But do you think maybe, assuming all these things are true, I don't know if they're true. I think it's very likely. Like I said, I'm probably a little more optimistic than you, but compared to most people, that's not pretty, not optimistic. I'm open, yeah. I'm open to debate, but do you think that some people are just, it's too big a thing for them to even process consciously? Oh, it's completely overwhelming. That's the nature of existential crisis. It's just too big for most people to grasp. And, you know, this is one of the situations where, it's really tough, but when environmentalists get divided like we all are, where people are think taking it as a personal criticism when I say that, you know, my comrades in Greenpeace have been kicking the can down the road and not going hard enough on it. You know, these people have a lot of them have dedicated their lives to this to this cause. And probably made the mistake of thinking that renewables were a way out. Where in reality, all it does is another way of fueling the, the engine that's grinding the living planet into dust. Yeah. And you know, your, the movie that you were involved with recently, Planet of the Humans, that has completely and utterly blown a whole lot of those myths out. And look at how much, how much flack you and Jeff and Mike Moore have all got as a result of, of the truths that you put out in that movie. Yeah, what was funny is the stuff that people were most upset about is saying that solar alone wasn't going to save the day. And, and personally, I don't have a lot of problems with solar in terms of I do think it has a footprint and we have to calculate that in. But my issue with solar is that we think that we're just going to plug in some panels and that's going to solve it. And I think that's actually why people got so upset with the movie is because it suggested that it's not enough. And you took away their one little... They're one little melting iceberg. 
I'm sitting here having this conversation with you and my power system is out on my shed outside. This is a, a fully um, solar-powered house with full 230-volt. Um, you know, you're at 110, but we're 230 in New Zealand. I have a perfectly normal house that works on solar power. But there's a lot of rare-earth metals yes. in my solar panels out on my roof. Of course. It could have, they could have been mined by children. There's no moral for Hester to sit here with his solar panels. Yeah. Well, it's funny is a lot of the folks I know who are the biggest critics of the idea that solar is going to save the day. Almost all of them have solar. <laughs> almost all of them because they actually know they're like, there's, this is limited and where it comes from. Most of the people who are like solar is everything don't have solar. <laughs> yeah. And I think another important thing that, all of us have to remember the people who are taking part in this conversation, whether it's you and I making it or our listeners listening to it, are the top five or ten percent of financially on the planet. Correct. Ninety-five percent of the people on this planet don't have running water or electricity. Right. They don't have this academic debate that we're having. They're busy out trying to get enough food to get them through the night or to dodge the bombs that are flying from the military-industrial complex. You know, this is another thing that environmental groups don't, they don't talk about imperialism enough. Enough? Do you mean at all? <laughs> at all, my point. Well, we all know why that is. I recently had a little clip that I segmented from a podcast with Tim Hermack. He works on a lot of forest stuff, but he has been a big critique, a big critic of environmental groups. And it's, yeah, if you start talking about certain issues, your funders go away. And that sure as hell will make your funders go away if you start talking about it. So yeah, the environmental groups, I think it's one of the biggest scandals that is going on in the world right now. It's that the environmental groups are really not, they know they're not doing what is necessary to make a difference. But it can be argued that it's maybe too late anyway. So maybe that's all academic, right? So isn't it too late? It's not too late to tell the truth. I think this is imperative to tell the truth, and especially to the youth. And one of the reasons why I'm, I'm motivated by that philosophy is I think you young people, we're in a new paradigm. They have to make decisions about their future based on the new paradigm, not the old one of getting a career, working hard, getting established, starting a family, getting a home, having a retirement in many decades. That paradigm doesn't exist. And until we move on from that, we won't be getting our young people to be learning the skills they need to learn. So you're not foreseeing a complete eradication of humans right away. You're saying there is going to be some civilization or whatever you want to call it in the near future? Well, it has to be something, you know, we're not going to just be um, switched off like a light, right. but you know, it's going to be an odious, hideous slide into the abyss. These are the good old days. Yep. Nothing is going to get better. Every single last analog is heading in the wrong direction. So that's obviously a hard pill to swallow. And 
why would anyone... All right, let's say it is all about to fall apart, right? Wouldn't it just be better to pretend that it's not and at least not be freaking out for the rest of your days? Do you mean like the elites are doing now as we speak? <laughs> sure, yep. And they're spending billions on bunkers. Yeah. They're still going around with business as usual. This is back to the privilege issue. You know, the people in Iraq who just had their highest recorded temperature ever last week, mm. they don't have the luxury of um, ignoring it. No. The people in Somalia, the people in Yemen who are being carpet bombed daily by mm. the military industrial complex, mm. they can't step away from it like that. Yeah, that's. I don't think their mothers are lying to them at night. I think their mothers, when they put their children to bed, kiss them and hug them and tell them they love them like every other mother does. And that hopefully tomorrow will be better. But we just have to make the best of everything that we've got while we've got it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that brings up, do you, do you predict mass migrations, right? People are going to want to be where there is more survivable landscapes, right? So do you see that happening more? I mean, we're already having climate change refugees, but it's, it's a trickle, right? It is a trickle where we live, but it's not a trickle in places like the Middle East. Okay. You know, in Syria, they had massive crop failures and a whole lot of people migrated into the cities. And that gave, you know, a lot of disharmony and it gave the opportunity for the military industrial complex to destabilize Syria. You know, this is what they do everywhere. So they, they, these will all be manipulated. All of these refugees will be manipulated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cause that's definitely maybe a way to motivate people to pay attention, although that would just make people dig in and become more nationalistic and try to keep people out, which I don't really think is the answer either. We got to figure things out as best we can around the world. And yeah, I, I'm fairly ignorant of, I'm, fair, I'm fairly ignorant of most things, but there are some things I mo know more than others. And I don't understand the world situation as well as I could. I focus on my little piece of the world and that's only it's only a blip on the radar, really, and this is the areas that's probably doing better than anywhere else. So I think you make some really valid points about that. But the precautionary principle, the idea of you're asking people to prepare in advance for something that, according to their, their experts who they want to choose, might be saying, you know what, everything's going to turn out okay. So I'm curious if you think, do you think just as a species descending from the apes or common ape ancestors, that we're not equipped to think in the future because this is a little pet theory of mine. <laughs> we grew up in the forest as apes or whatever we, we were at the time, and we had fruit all the time, right? There was really not a lot of season of scarcity. So the idea of preparing for the future didn't really come up so much. If we had maybe evolved from squirrels that are used to squirreling away their nuts every winter, maybe we'd be able to prepare a little better. Do you think that has anything to do with it? <laughs> I think that really only applies to us industrial sapiens. Yeah. I don't think indigenous people thought like that. I think the indigenous people really did have a long-term plan. Imagine what it was like for the First Nations people in your country, who, when they used to go buffalo hunting, 
they would only kill what they could eat for the next few days. And then they would go and get another buffalo when they needed it. Imagine what they thought when they saw the trains get built through your prairies and, and people stopping those trains and they were just firing out and murdering buffalo. Right. And then the train would drive on. Can you imagine what those people thought? They would have looked at those people on the train and the one word that would have come into their minds was insanity. Well, that's pretty accurate. This is insane at so, every level. So at what point do you think we hit the point of no return? And I don't mean in terms of carbon emissions. I mean in terms of ways of living. Burning hydrocarbons. Yeah. I, it might have been civilization. And so I hear that term a lot and everyone has a different definition of what civilization means. So what do you mean by that? Well, when we started living in bigger groups and storing grain, you know, before we stored grain, we only had whatever food we could gather seasonally around wherever we lived. And the ability to store grain did two things. It, it, it meant that you could have reserves, but it also turned, opened up to commerce yep. where you could buy it and yep. sell it and own people and control them through the use of that. Yeah. Yeah. There's different folks who have different tipping points in mind. I'm reading this book called Integral Ecology and it, it, different people say things like, you know, up until recently, industrial society, industrial civilization was the turning point. Some people will say, when we went from gatherer hunter to even to horticulture, some people say, no, we went to straight up agrarian. Some folks say language. So there's all sorts of different tipping points. And I think it's really interesting. And I think all of them have, have a point. Each of them have added more and more to that unraveling. Of course, the idea of right now, I'm just going to drop everything and return to that way of life. It's literally not possible. There isn't a land base. There are people who say, oh, I hunt, I hunt my deer and that's my food source. And if everyone did that, well, if everyone did that, there'd literally be no deer. That's, that's not even an option anymore. Not to say that people, a few people can't do that. That doesn't matter. But it's not an option for everyone. So we can't do that right now, right? Especially not with the population overshoot that we're, we've uh, triggered. You know, we're, we're like the, the bacteria in the tea tree, in, in, in the petri dish, just gone insane. So, yeah, and, and an argument I would say on the other side of stuff and whether or not they're paying attention to science, but just in general, how much of this would you say is just us being anti-human? Because I will admit that I have long time been a, a misanthrope. I'm, I'm a recovering misanthrope. I don't dislike most people, hardly at all. I hardly really even dislike individuals, but I think about humanity. I'm like, oh, humanity. So if people are saying, we're just down on humans, what would you say to that? Uh, no, I'm, I'm not at all. No, I, I, I would reject that completely. I am down on a lot of humans who look like me. <laughs> I think the white male patriarchy has been a dominant force in grinding the living planet into dust. I'm the personification of it. But I've traveled in a lot of third world countries. You know, I worked in Africa, I worked on a development project in Mozambique, 
travelled extensively through Africa in an overland truck. I've sailed all, well, not all around the Pacific, but I've been to many countries, many islands in the Pacific where it's all Polynesian people, and I identify with those people really closely. So I don't have any negative negative feelings towards those people as a race. You know, I think racism is a, is an ecological issue. It has to be treated as an ecological issue. So much of the degradation of the planet has been motivated by racism. You know, where colonial and imperialist forces have gone to indigenous countries and with their racism have just wiped them out and destroyed them. Imagine how much cultural um, information that we've lost through wiping out those cultures. Stuff they've learned about using plants for medicine. You know, I know people who say that the Amazon rainforest is the... Is the um, the pharmacy of the planet. Yeah. So, you know, when you wipe those places out, you, you lose both the, the flora that can provide those pharmaceutical benefits and the intellectual uh, property, the value in the indigenous people of knowing about it for generations. They know that when this plant's in flower, this fruit is sweet. They know that when this plant's in flower, this is good medicine. You can use it. Yeah, there's no question that all those storehouses have been lost and the exploitation of entire cultures of people from other cultures, I think that's undeniable. And I think you make a good point about yeah, the environmental destruction from, from that. But here's my concern is that let's say we did get to a, a more sustainable way of living similar to how indigenous people might have lived or some of whom still do. Isn't that still a gradual progression that's always going to take us back into industrialization? Wouldn't, wouldn't any of these cultures at a certain point in time, based on what resources they have access to, because that's basically what it comes down to, ultimately go past the tipping point eventually, and then we just keep going through this cycle forever? Or do you see that there could be a stability in theory? In um, present tense or future tense, I'd say no, absolutely not. In past tense, possibly, mm. but I, I'm really not sure because the worst of us are extraordinarily bad. You know, the sociopathy and psychopathy that I see on the planet now, I don't believe that existed to the same degree centuries ago. If you lived in a, in a village environment, you couldn't survive as a sociopath or a psychopath. You'd have been kicked out of the village immediately. Right. I've got a, a theory that capitalism is a vortex of sociopathy and psychopathy to the top. The people who do the best in capitalism are suffering from one of those illnesses because they can make decisions. Normal, healthy human beings could never countenance. Yeah, it certainly helps. <laughs> Yeah, there are studies about what percentage of CEOs are sociopaths, and it's pretty telling. Yeah, it's, it's pretty disturbing. So you mentioned a little while ago about acceptance. Now, I, I wonder how many people are in the different stages, though, in terms of assuming this is all true. And I don't know if it is. And like I said, I'm somebody who's like, it could very well be true. I don't necessarily say a hundred percent it's going to turn out this way, but my belief is things are bad enough that 
whatever urgency the folks who are maybe at the more extreme end of this are suggesting, I'm pretty much in favor of those actions because I do think things are very, very urgent. But regardless, so let's just say you're, you'd be in anywhere from, man, things are getting pretty bad and are going to get worse to things are going to be awful. Let's say you're somewhere in that spectrum, right? So that can include me and, and maybe include you there too. So the, the dealing with this emotionally, you mentioned earlier the managing of grief. So that's not typically something that comes up when you're talking about environmentalism, right? That rarely comes up. So what do you, what do you mean by that and how is that even done? My antidote to despair, and you know, there's that great quote from Edward Abbey, uh, action is the antidote to despair. My antidote to despair is I volunteer at a native tree nursery on our island. I'm the water boy. So through the summers, I make sure everyone gets hydrated and looked after and wet at the weeding and all the little jobs like that. And it's my way of mitigating my grief, knowing what's coming down the pike. And I think finding something like that is a really rewarding way to spend your time. It's a, it's a good mea culpa to Gaia. You know, I've flown around the world. I've sailed around the world. You know, I've got a carbon footprint bigger than some cities in Africa. And that's done and dusted. You know, you can't undo what you did before. Right. But I go down to that nursery and I really feel good. Mm -hmm. Those plants give me a bloody good vibe. And I feel positive about it. And it helps me when I'm doing this research, because, you know, I spend a lot of my time researching abrupt climate change. I've spent pretty much all my waking hours doing it. I have the luxury of being able to do that. And uh, it's Armageddon. You know, I just mentioned a little while ago to you about the fires in Argentina. Were you aware that there are massive fires burning in Argentina? No. No. See, that's what I mean. It is much worse than we think. So getting through that, though, so a lot of people put up their blocks. So they may, around the edges of things, feel like things are going off the rails, but then they just distract themselves like with all sorts of, we have plenty of things to distract ourselves with. Our whole world is distraction in the developed world, the so-called developed world. We have nothing but entertainment. I can sit at home, even during this pandemic stuff, and watch any television show ever made any film if i want a, a song i remember this song from the 80s let me look it up on youtube there it is so in some ways that's wonderful but in other ways clearly that doesn't make our lives better the fact that i can watch an aha video at the touch of my fingers does not really improve my life so much but we have all of these things to just yeah but there's this do you think that that is part of why we're not acknowledging or do you think we created all these distractions deliberately so we don't have to acknowledge or a little bit of both distractions is a very good topic to discuss because i think so much of what people are talking about in the in the media about politics you know your country's a classic example i think everything is a distraction from climate breakdown you know i see lots of people in, in my my circles on social media who who um, who know about the seriousness of the of the ecological crisis, 
And then they're talking about who they're going to vote for in the election. You know, I, I saw, I've been listening to Mike Moore's podcasts on his, his latest um, series of podcasts. And he was telling, he was pleading with people to go and call their senators and call their congressmen. And I thought, fuck, seriously, Mike, cut me some slack. Surely you can't for a second think that that's a productive use of time. But I used to do that. I used to write out, you know, write letters to politicians and, and plead with them to do something. And you'd get platitudes back, of course, but you never get it back from the real people. You get it back from their personal assistants and their their um, their buffer zone around them. Of course. Yeah. Well, some people don't know what else to do other than go through the motions. I think that's a bit of a, a panicking experience. But why not, if things are that dire, why not just become a hedonist? Why not just sniff coke, bang prostitutes all day? Why, why plant trees? It's my nature. My nature isn't that hedonism. But I would admit that, you know, I was more hedonistic when I was younger. This is a luxury I have with getting a bit of maturity. Mm -hmm. and, and also, you know, I've been just so privileged. I was born into a poor home, but I was born in New Zealand. Right. I had full employment all my life. When I needed to work, I always had employment. So, you know, my position comes from a position of luxury. I, I did a, I did a, a delivery out to Vanuatu, to Tana, which is a volcano that erupts perpetually in, in Vanuatu. And I went up there and walked, climbed the mountain, stood on the crater edge and, and looked into it. And when we were walking through the bush from where we anchored the yacht to um, the crater, we bumped into a whole lot of little Vanuatu and children. And they were in the age group of 6 to 10 or 11. They had machetes and they had slingshots. And they were hunting bats <laughs> to take home for their parents to eat. Now, since COVID came out, you've seen all these racist articles going on around about, oh, the Chinese and their, and their wet markets and eating bats and all that. Excuse me, poor people around the world are surviving on bush tucker, what they can kill and eat. People have been eating bats a lot longer than they've been eating baguettes. Right. But just to push back on that, hasn't the argument been that it's not starving poor people who are eating the bats, it's people who are doing that as a delicacy? It's kind of a side tangent, but... Yeah, sure. I think that's true. But I think there's a degree of racism in that as well, you know. Hmm. Um, it's always pointed at Asian people or African people when you're talking about things like that. But the Europeans eat some pretty gross things. <laughs> the Scottish have some pretty gross things. You know, it's... Um, Maybe I'm overstating the racism aspect of it, but I'm very suspicious of it when I read those kind of articles. It, I understand that. And I think there probably is some threat of it in terms of, no, in our culture, this is fine to do this. But if your culture does it, that's wrong. That's definitely making judgments based on one's culture. I think because the pandemics are a concern, and I do want to tie that together actually in a second, but the idea of, okay, well, this might be a vector we might want to pay attention to that. So if you don't need that to survive, 
I don't know if that's a great idea, but, but that being said, I, I think, yeah, it's easy to point your finger at people who do things differently than you. And that's what humans are best at. And that's definitely not just a Western thing. It seems like that's pretty ingrained in most of humanity is in group versus out group. And that's unfortunately a lot of what's led to a lot of the problems in the world. But what I've always been concerned about on top of environmental degradation, on top of climate change, which I started becoming aware of in the early 2000s, or at least very concerned about, is the pandemic stuff. So do you see this pandemic? I don't think this pandemic is going to destroy everything, but it's certainly leading to a lot of unraveling. And what I see is all of these whammies happening at once. So do you see COVID as just, if not in and of itself, something that is horrific, which it's pretty bad, it's sort of a taste of what could happen more in the future? Unquestionably, it's systemic. It just shows what can happen. And this is, this is all linked to globalization, of course. You know, if, that, if we didn't have the level of globalization and people flying all around the planet, that would have been contained right. in Wuhan. Yeah. And, and we would have, the Chinese government would have dealt with it and we would have all learned from it. But because we have this decadence where we can jump on airplanes and fly around the planet. And, you know, Hester's guilty as charged. I've done it. I'm, I've got no moral high ground for me when mm -hmm. I have this conversation. Sure. But, yeah, this has exposed globalization incredibly and our supply chains. Right. Right. Well, so I think that this could be, and I'd be curious if you agree, this might be a way to teach people of what might be coming environmentally, right? I'm not the one who came up with that concept. Obviously, tons of people are talking about it. But do you think that that is valid? Your average individual who's like, ah, the environment, whatever, trees are fine, but I don't care. All right, a lizard dies, so what? All of a sudden, this is hitting them literally at home. Do you think that they might be a little bit more open to the idea of eco-collapse? I don't doubt that. And I think more and more, an exponential number of of people are coming around to that. But the trouble is the culture, capitalism. Yeah. The problem is the infinite growth paradigm on a finite planet. Yeah. Well, I, I'm 60 years old. When I was about 10, my father said to me once, if we don't overthrow capitalism, it'll make the planet uninhabitable. That's come back to haunt me. And, you know, I did my best. I've been an anti-capitalist for many decades. and But, you know, we failed. Yeah. Well, do you think maybe people just are not at a, can use the term, level of consciousness where they can really appreciate what's going on in the world right now? No, I think that it's there for, for anyone who's got the courage and the time to go and see. But I think most people just... I kept in the dark. You know, what I look at the, at the mainstream media, the reason I'm involved in this alternative media doing stuff like this with you is that this is the only place you'll find people who are telling the truth for no material gain. This is costing you money to make to, to call me and, and upload this to the net and to have this conversation. You're not getting any money from it. What, what I do is... An, a zero-sum game financially, it cost me. Right. But 
The problem with our culture is that it's all about continuing with business as usual. So you can see Washington Post and The Guardian and, and The Independent. You can see those media organisations covering climate change, but they're not covering imminent um, ecosystem breakdown. It's always projected off into the future. 2100 used to be the mantra. Then it became 2050. Now it's becoming 2030. But the reality is, is the unraveling is taking place live and direct right in front of us. So if you don't think it's consciousness, and I don't mean to get all woo-woo, but just in terms of where the brain is at in terms of psychological, psychosocial development. So I don't mean intelligence, not, nothing to do with that, but just the ability to take certain perspectives. So what makes it that folks like you and I started caring about this stuff and other folks who are just as smart, just have as much access to information as us, they just didn't. What's the difference? Empathy. Yeah? Our culture is a selfish, self-centered culture. It, it inculcates that in people. It makes them be like that. And a lot of people are like that. And, you know, you've got to remember, a lot of people are angry. The disenfranchised are angry. So they don't have... A, they, that anger overwhelms their empathy because they're bitter and twisted, and often for really good reasons. You know, <clears throat> I live in a country that was stolen from the indigenous people. They are angry. They got every right to be angry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they did that here too. <laughs> they did that a lot of places. Unfortunately, it does seem to be the human thing. You have more power than another person. You have more access to resources and organized armies and you take over other folks. We do see it in the animal kingdom and I'm not trying to forgive any of this, but we do see that even in the animal kingdom, different tribes of apes will come in and take over the other one. So I do unfortunately think it is a germ in our brain, but I think we have the awareness that an ape tribe does not have right? Apes aren't aware. Oh, if we do, that's really mean to those other, for me to eat their baby. They don't think about that. We know when we're hopefully not eating anyone's babies, but doing that, we know what we're doing. That's the difference. Are you sure though that they don't know that? I, I I'm not sure. Use, I, I don't no, know. No, I, I think um, it's interesting that the, the species that used as that analogy was the apes, our yeah. cousins. Yeah. If you go to much more disconnected species than ours, yeah. you'll struggle to find it in the same way. How do you mean? Apes, ape, well, you, you know, you don't see frogs going around doing that. You don't see coyotes don't go and wipe everything out. They go and eat what they need. Yeah. They don't spend all day killing. They kill until their their hunger is satisfied. It seems like it, yeah. Yeah, and even that's... When I, when I was in Africa, I had quite a lot of contact with lions, what, you know, from distance, obviously. Yeah, hopefully. But um, lions spend most of their time lying around chilling like cats do. Oh, yeah. Yep. Once they've got a full tummy, they're not out hunting all the time. Yeah. And I don't even think apes were just kill to kill. A lot of times it was for food. And a lot of the times it's for territory, right? and access to mates and stuff like that. But it's a good point. We don't know what's going on in their head. I do like to think 
that they're not deliberately inflict. I don't know if they are capable of knowing that I am about to bite into this other ape and it's going to feel that same pain that I feel when I'm bitten. Maybe they do feel that. If so, then that's probably a strike against the apes. But in my mind, they don't quite know that. But we know well what happens. So my only point is that we, we have a lot of potential with our consciousness because we can see what we're doing and prevent it. But ironically, we do, we do it despite that and we do it more than all the other creatures on the planet put together. So does that mean that we're evil? I think we've been born into captivity. Okay. And it's an incredibly corrupting environment. It's toxic. Capitalism is toxic. It's competitive. It's dog eat dog. So I think that has a very strong environmental effect on our behavior. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably agree that it's a little bit of both. I don't know how much. I do still think that there is a an impulse. I don't quite believe in the purity of humanity and that we're completely corrupted by our society. I think probably we're mostly corrupted by our society, but there's a little bit of inborn brutality that we should be able to overcome, but we're doing the opposite. So I used to think the best thing we could do is devolve into wolves or something like that. And if I had the choice, I may still, I might still take that choice. That's not really an option. What I'm hoping, what I still have a little tiny bit of hope, and it doesn't change the fact that I still think things are urgent and I want to do everything that's possible to prevent the worst. But my hope is that we can start seeing what we're doing and actually become stewards. So they talk about that in the Bible and some people say it's been distorted or whatever. Obviously the biblical version of it has has a lot to be desired and I'm not a religious person at all. But the idea of being a steward, we can be aware of at least stewarding the rest of humanity, what we're doing, but we don't do that at all. Do you think that there could ever be a point in time where we would learn from our lessons enough and we can do that? Uh, no, I think the outcome of runaway global warming and the collapse of civilization negates that whole debate. So there's you know, not enough time is what you're saying. We might be able yeah, to figure that out over millions of years, but we don't have that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things that not, not many people are keen to talk about is that when industrial civilization falls over, we get six, sorry, 450 nuclear power station meltdowns. Oh, I know. And much, much worse than that are the 1,300 spent fuel pool fires we'll have. I know. That, that is, um, it's so mind-boggling to think what that will do to the planet. Yeah, that's why I think one of the biggest sins that we've done is dabbled in nuclear stuff. Even if we could get to the point where humans are perfect and we wouldn't have any accidents, which I don't believe for a second, we can't even go a decade without an accident. The fact that we're creating stuff that lasts that long is, yeah, that's that's just unacceptable. And yeah, people don't think about that. We have to keep everything going to prevent that from doing some pretty terrible things. So that's, I don't know if that would be quite nuclear winter, but at least little localized versions of it. 
Not good. I have a theory on nuclear winter. Yeah. It's the only way to cool down the planet that I know. I think the psychopaths will opt for it. I think we could easily see any day we could see a nuclear exchange or the use of nuclear weapons be taken. Iran could be a very interesting example where the United States could nuke Iran and say, look, they had what they were building a weapon and it blew up on them. How would if, if they smuggled a weapon into that country and detonated it, how would we know? But straight away, that what, what that would do is it would throw up an enormous amount of aerosols into the atmosphere. Right. And we know that will cool it. I think there's a distinct possibility we'll see nuclear weapons used for that purpose. And to be clear, you're not advocating for that, just so everyone knows. <laughs> oh, mate, I, I've been an anti-nuclear activist for uh, 41 years. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Well, once arrested for um, obstructing a nuclear ship in the course of its passage. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I beat the rat. I won the case. All right. Good. Good on you. And, I, and we stopped the ship. <laughs> yep. That's some risky stuff, man. That's some risky stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Nuclear, nuclear war is definitely, that's probably, I'm more frightened of that than I am. I don't know. Pandemics is at the top just because I don't care for that concept. The current pandemic is pretty awful, but could be way worse. That really frightens me. But of course, the idea of the planet slowly cooking, obviously that frightens me, but it's not as an extreme event as the missiles flying across the seas. And so, yeah, I really, I hope I'm not alive anymore, at least if that were to happen. But on that, on that pleasant note, let, let's start wrapping stuff up. But in terms of a way to wrap one's head around at least that spectrum, because I, I know for a fact that not everyone is going to believe that the imminent doom is, is coming. Like, I'm not saying it's not, and I don't know. I, I'm not, I don't have any information to refute your points, and I'm not trying to. I'm just saying I'm a little bit more in the, the slightly, like, let's say if you're at a 10, 1 to 10, I'm maybe more like in an 8.7 or something like that. Yeah. So let's just say for the people who are eight and above, to make my complicated analogy even more complicated, having a way to just make sense of the world and not just sitting there and crying, right? One of the things that's been helpful to me in terms of just living life in general, in terms of growing older and having pain and losing people and things like that, and just the the difficulty of being alive and being self-aware, as self-aware as I am, is so Eastern thought has been really helpful to me in terms of aspects of Taoism, aspects of Buddhism. I don't, I'm not an ist personally. I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not a Taoist. But in their teachings, it's it's about it's about living in the present. So COVID, even though it's not, it's pretty bad. It's it's pretty bad. I I don't want to downplay it at all, and it may get worse. I don't know. It's bad enough and it has definitely shocked a lot of people and it shocked me as well. One of the things that's really helped is say, okay, well, here I am right now. I'm going to live in the moment. I'm going to appreciate the things that I can. I'm going to do the things that I can to protect myself, to encourage others to do the right thing, encouraged by government to do the right thing, whatever. 
but simultaneously being okay with whatever happens, right? And that's not the same thing as fatalism, as in there's nothing you can do. That's more of a nihilism. So would you say that that concept of Eastern thought is something that you've pondered or have taken into your way of looking at things? Yeah, absolutely. I I consider myself in hospice. I think we're in planetary hospice. One one person that our listeners could check out that, that talks about this a lot is Stephen Jenkinson. Okay. He's an absolutely wonderful Canadian philosopher. I've interviewed him on, on our radio show, and Guy interviewed him previously. He And he worked in the hospice trade. He called it the death trade. And he describes us as being a death-denying culture. Right. And I totally get that. I've had really amazing experiences with hospice. I, I looked after my parents as they were dying, mm. and I looked after a neighbor on the island. And it can be a really, really cathartic experience. Hospice can be great. Mm-hmm. I know that will sound strange to people who haven't had the experience, but you know, my hospice experience with my mother was that the last six weeks that we had together was the most honest six weeks of our lives together. It was absolutely wonderful. I look back on it with with joy about how great it was. Mm. Of course, I was heartbroken to see my mother die. Yeah. But we made the best of it. And I think that what people should do now is do the same. Embrace it, but make the best of it. Get out and be a part of nature while it's still healthy. Don't dwell on, on when it's going to be back, you know, in your area, when when biosphere collapse takes place. Get out and make the most of it while you can. So for those who are trying to avoid psychological pain, which is pretty much all of us, right? Who really wants to deal with that? Would you say that the acceptance of this is going to make it less painful than denying it and then it just happens all around you? Would you say it's like practicing to die, basically? One of the things that this knowledge has done for me is it's taken a whole lot of pressure off me. For decades, I was trying to fix everything. Yep. I was going to pull the nuclear industry down. It was a huge part of my life. Yeah. But now I understand that we're over the cliff and we're in this free fall stage. And it doesn't mean I've become hedonistic. It doesn't mean I've given up. I'm still working at the nursery. I'm still... I'm planting trees that I think will immolate in the coming years, but I'm still going to plant those trees. Mm-hmm. So for me, this knowledge has really taken a weight off my shoulders of trying to fix the unfixable. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. It's almost like a collective ego death when we realize it's, it's a lot bigger than us individually and there's not a lot we can do. I still think there's stuff we can do. And yeah, no matter what, I think it's worth doing positive things. You can look at it maybe like, and I swear I'm not, I'm not a Zen Buddhist practitioner. I do support, I do believe in some of those concepts, but I do think it's relevant to this topic. So the, the monks, they'll do the little sand designs. I forget what they're called. They make mandalas and stuff like that. And they're these beautiful, beautiful things, painstaking, perfect work, colored sands on the ground. And then when they're done, they deliberately wipe it out. 
So they're not getting overly attached to the product, but it's not like they're going through and they're like, whatever, I'm just going to get rid of this anyway. Did you say that might be a useful practice in terms of looking at the world that way, ecologically? Absolutely. This goes back to the Buddhist philosophy of right action without being attached to the outcome. This is what I am doing. I, I, I know what will happen in my trees, but I can plant a seed and see it sprout and get the joy of that. What people have to look for is don't look for the Armageddon. Look for the joy. Look for what you can do that will bring you joy. There is an antidote to despair. But what would you say if folks say, well, I'm listening to your podcast and you guys are talking about Armageddon. How am I not going to think about it? Well, do you want to live in the real world or do you want to live in the delusion? Most people want delusion. Most people pick delusion. (laughs) Yeah, see, I'm not not reaching out to them. Yeah. Um, I I, I leave them to it. I'm reaching out to the empaths who are struggling with this. Right. Good point. That's a good point. Yeah, you can't reach everyone. There's no point in doing that. Putting out the message for those it would resonate with. Now, well, here's here's a maybe the final question. We'll see if it's the final question or not, depending on how you respond to it. But what if we're wrong and actually everything is fine and we find this out 70 years? Well, I like to think that you're going to live to be 130 years old, but let's just say we find it out in 30 years and you're still running around, you're still ticking in 30 years. And no, we have proof that it's all actually okay so would we have wasted all of our time being negative and focusing on problems that didn't exist like what what i'm saying that what happens if that is true that things were actually fine would didn't we just waste our lives focusing on things that weren't really problems not me i'll have i'll have reforested this island You've basically hedged, you've hedged your bet. So my point is that you might have a secret optimist inside of you and maybe you're hedging your bets just in case because you're not being a hedonist. You're not just going out there being all big ego, man. You're trying to do the right thing and you're putting out your message and all that stuff. So you're saying no matter what, you're doing the thing that you know is the right thing for you to do. And, and if it turns out to be that things end up being fine, you'll still have planted all these trees. You'll still have told people about species extinction, which is definitely, I mean, no one can deny that, of course. Even the the most deniers can't deny species extinction. It's happening every day. So that's just, it's a complicated question. It's kind of an awkward question. I didn't phrase it very well, but I just, you know, I always like to think of things from other perspectives. And I always like to think if I might be wrong, and what you're saying is even if we are wrong, and I'm, I'm not saying that, that there's evidence that we are, if you do the right thing in your life, it works out regardless. Yeah. Okay. What have you got to lose from doing the right thing? It's soul food. And, and strangely, having that frontier, the apocalyptic frontier in front of me, it makes me more empathetic. It makes me more likely to do the right thing. I guess I tend to worry about folks who it's going to make them just totally tune out and do the wrong thing. But 
maybe what you're saying is that those people aren't going to be receptive to this anyway, and I'm I'm wasting my time worrying about that. Yeah, no, honestly, I, I think what we should do is we should concentrate on the people we love and the people who love us and the disenfranchised. Yeah, yeah. They need a voice. I will be their voice until my voice is silenced. Yeah, and it's a lot of folks in the developing world that they don't have the luxury of even being environmentalists, frankly. They're struggling to survive on a daily basis. And yeah, that that is something that I have been thinking about more and more. I've always thought about it a bit, of course, but more and more I've been thinking about it and realizing that so many of the problems that folks in the Western world point out, which are valid, right, are just drops in the bucket compared to how many people are just dealing with basic survival stuff. And what COVID did is it brought the rest of the world into the developed world a little bit, right? It's still, I mean, it's still arguable. I think more people die of malaria than will die of COVID in North America or whatever, but it's still a little taste. And not that I want more suffering to be spread around the world. I think maybe it will give people a little bit more of a glimpse of what other people are dealing with. And the fact that, yeah, they're going to be suffering the brunt of climate change. Like you said, people who are living in the Middle East with the hottest temperatures ever, that's way worse than me living. I'm living in the mountains and I'm like, oh, man, it might get to 83. That's a little too hot for me. That's a joke. They would they would cut off their limbs to be able to wander around the meadows where I'm wandering around complaining about it being slightly too hot. So I do think it's important for us to put that all in perspective and, and that these environmental issues are not ultimately first world issues. They're, they're actually arguably more, the brunt is being bear, borne by other folks, but we're actually more the ones who are causing that problem. So I'm just stating the obvious here, but I, I, I'm resonating with your message of as we see things fall apart more and more to whatever extent that is, that should develop and can develop more empathy in us rather than numbness. And I'm finding that I'm finding that I am getting more empathetic than numb. So maybe that is a good thing to let that in. Oh, that 100% applies to me. No question about it. The more I've realized the danger that the, the uh, natural world is in, the more empathetic I've become. But, you know, one, two of the most formative things that have happened in my life is um, I traveled extensively in Southeast Asia and in Africa, where there were spectacular, in the Pacific, where there were spectacularly poor people. And I came from a relatively poor home, but in a, in a Western industrialized sense, you know, for someone who had a good education and, and always had a job. But another thing that really for, formed me as a person was I lived in two war zones. Mm. I lived in the occupied six counties of Ireland uh, when the British were pointing guns at us 24-7. We couldn't walk out of the house without having a gun trained on us. Mm. And I worked in Mozambique on a development project in 1991 where it was pretty much a failed state. The South African apartheid regime was destabilizing the country. Mm. And... You can't get some of the things that you see and remarkably the smells that you smell, you can never get over. Mm. You know, I've smelt 
the smell of burning flesh, human flesh. Uh, you don't ever get over that. But what that did, it made me spectacularly anti-war. Yeah, I would imagine that it would. Yeah, and that's sometimes you have to go through the fire, hopefully not literally, but to understand how real these issues are. Because I do think a lot of folks in the Western world have been divorced from the reality of a lot of those things. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about this. This is definitely a weighty topic. It's something that I struggle with and I, my thoughts are evolving on it on a regular basis. I'm open to all sorts of information on it. One thing I can't deny is something's happening. I don't know exactly what it is. I have no evidence to refute anything that you're saying. I think it'd leave it up to the listeners. But if people want to find more of your work and if they want to get a hold of you, what, how would they do so? Uh, my website is kevinhester.live, all caps. Um, I, I don't post there a hell of a lot. I, I concentrate on making sure that they're, they're serious, relevant things rather than bombarding it, it, people with it. I'm on social media, but I'm, getting, I'm spending less and less time on social media because I want to spend more and more time in the natural world. But, yeah, I'm easily findable, and, and my work is easy to find, you know. Uh, Guy and I have Naturebacks last on the Progressive Radio Network. There's 135 shows on there, so people can track all that down. Great. So get a hold of Kevin if you want to talk to him about this stuff. He knows a million times more than I do about these topics, so he is definitely your source. And thanks so much, Kevin, for talking to me. Hey, this has been really great from a personal point of view. You and my friendship, I think, will be deeper after this because we've had this more... It's much more intimate than keyboards and, um, and f Facebook and social media. So I think people, what I really would like people to do is reach out to the people they love and, and spend more time with them and invest more time in them. There's no more important time in history to form a tribe than today. Well, those are words of wisdom. So thank you, Kevin. Been an absolute pleasure. Let's do it again sometime, brother. Sounds good.